Okay, so that's where we'll be tonight in chapter 2, 14 to 26, if you want to turn there. And it occurred to me earlier today that, you know, we've been parallel teaching through Exodus and through James. And Chad is 34 chapters through Exodus, and I'm in chapter 2 of James. So I've got some catching up to do uh, in a hurry. I want to, before we get into the text tonight, I want to, by way of review, um, remind us of the context of James's letter. And by doing that, I want to focus on three groups of people that he's writing to or that he's talking about. And there's some overlap between these groups. So the first ones would be what I would call the fleers, those who have fled Jerusalem. Due to persecution by the Jews who have rejected Jesus, James's audience has been dispersed. Remember in, in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, to those in the dispersion. And they've been dispersed away from home and from everything familiar. And even, even so, James challenges his listeners to see their trials, to see what's going on in a new way. That this testing by trials of various kinds is meant to lead them to maturity, meant to lead them into Christ-likeness. A grown-up faith that's exactly like the faith that Jesus himself had. So that's the first group is the fleers. But then also within that group, you have the fighters. And because there's been violent persecution against the church, there are some within the church who want to retaliate and who want to fight back. And the more that they start to turn toward retaliation and toward fighting back, the more that it shows that they've been stained by the world. And part of their their strategy is to try to get rich people to help them do that too. And James says, that just shows that you've been stained by the world because the anger of man and the riches of others does not produce the righteousness of God. That is not how God is going to make things right on the earth. And then finally, the third group is the forgotten. And because of all this persecution, there's an extraordinary amount of need within the community. Because of the violence against the church, some men have died, leaving widows behind and leaving orphans behind. And if you remember, James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so in turning toward retaliation, these leaders have also neglected to care for the widows and the orphans that are in their community. So there's a lot of need, but some are being forgotten. And that's going to kind of lead into one of the emphases in the text tonight. That's the broader context. The immediate context of tonight's verses means that we need to look at what comes, what came before this. So the verses leading into tonight's text are chapter 2, 12, and 13, where James said, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And remember that the law of liberty is the law of freed slaves. We were enslaved to sin, but Jesus has broken the chains so that we're no longer slaves to sin. He set us free. And that doesn't make us lawless. It doesn't make us free to just do whatever we want. But we're now free to look into God's law and see what it releases us to do. Now that empowered by the Spirit, we are free to do these things. And as we'll see, the law frees us from concern for ourselves so that we can do works of mercy for others. 
So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the letter of James. We thank you for the ways in which you have challenged us through it. We thank you for the ways in which the Spirit has turned our attention and made us see some things maybe that we haven't wanted to see in ourselves. But we pray that we would have humble spirits and be able to hear what you have to say to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So this is the central question that's going to govern the text for tonight. Is faith without corresponding works the kind of faith that can save? Or in other words, does the content of my beliefs need to be matched by my actions? Or in other words, does God only care about the belief that is in my head? Or does that belief need to be expressed in deeds? Or in other other words, what kind of faith qualifies as being worthy of salvation? That that all sounds very abstract, like trying to work out a logical puzzle or trying to put a theological or philosophical argument together. It's very abstract. You can't really get your hands around it. So would an illustration or a story maybe help us get our arms around this concept of faith and works with the help? Well, good, because that's what James does in the very next verses. Starting in verse 15, he gives a little story to put this together. So, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we have a concrete example to look at. A brother or sister is obviously in need, poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food. And if you say, go in peace, be warmed and filled, you're obviously expressing faith that they will somehow be warmed and filled. And so the question is, can such a faith pass God's judgment? Because remember that James has just said that we'll all be judged by the law of liberty and that judgment is without mercy to those who show no mercy. So, is providing food and clothing to someone in need a work of mercy? It is. It absolutely is a work of mercy. It's a work that matches my saying, go in peace, be warmed and filled, if I give them something that will help them in their time of need. It reveals an active faith. It's a faith that acts. Now, it might seem like James is giving kind of an absurd example in these verses. It might be hard for us to think, you know, were there really people who were saying, go be warmed and filled to somebody obviously in need and not giving them anything? Well, it seems like this was happening in the communities that James was writing to. And remember that Because of persecution, people lost a lot. There was a lot of need in these communities. And it's very possible that people were reluctant to share with one another because they thought that they would not have enough eventually. And so, uh, you know, they they got excited when rich people came in 
Remember, they're like, oh, here's a rich person. This is good for us. And so if someone said, go in peace, be warmed and filled to a brother or sister in need, it probably wasn't that they were just callous and heartless, but they were trying to make sure that they had enough for themselves. They didn't want to give away and then find themselves on the short end later. If I give to you, what am I going to do if I run out myself? Surely that makes it okay to not give to this brother or sister, right? And James says, no, no, oh no, you don't. You're not getting away with that. If you profess with your mouth that Jesus is king, but don't show mercy to your brother, then your profession of faith is worthless. It's empty. There's nothing to it. There's no weight to it. And I I basically have two points that I want to make tonight and a couple of applications. And the first point is there is no faith without faithfulness. There is no faith without faithfulness. It's the Christmas season. It's the time of packages. So think of a a wrapped package that has on the outside of it the word faith in big letters. For that description to be accurate, for that package to contain faith, when you open the box, there should be faithfulness inside. There should be something in the contents that reflects the exterior of the box. And so if you say that Jesus is king and you fully trust in him, then for that statement to be accurate there needs to be a corresponding life of faithfulness that expresses itself in works. Does that make sense? We good so far? All right. So for some in James's audience, they have the package that's labeled faith. They can talk about faith. They can talk about what they believe. But when you look inside it, when you open it up, there's nothing there because they're letting their brothers and sister go in need without providing for the needs of the body. And that's why James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's inert. It doesn't accomplish anything. And if it is dead, then it cannot save. So the central question back to verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And the answer is a resounding no. That kind of faith is dead, and if it's dead, then it cannot save. They might call it faith, but in God's judgment, it's not. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So James anticipates an argument from the people that he's writing to, of somebody saying, well, you have faith and I have works, which is a little odd because you think, well, how can you have works if you don't actually have faith first? Well, again, back to the context. Remember that some of the leaders that James is writing to are beginning to move toward violent retaliation. They're beginning to fight back, and it's not hard for them to to imagine them saying, you know, we can't just sit around and pray all the time for God to intervene and do something for us. Our loved ones are getting executed, they're getting dragged to jail, and we've got to do something. And so I think think the imaginary arguer in saying, you have faith and I have works, means that they would be saying, it may be true that God loves us and is going to take care of us, and it may be true that our trials are going to bring us to maturity, but I'm sharpening my sword. 
And I'm going to do the work of delivering our people from slaughter. I'm not going to let us just sit around and get taken off to prison and get killed. And so I have works. You have faith, but I have works. I think that's the argument that James is anticipating. But he says, James says, that you can't say that you believe in the risen and ascended Jesus and also make contingency plans to protect yourself in case he doesn't come through. James says that that doesn't go together. That's incongruent. That's like saying, go in peace, be warmed and filled and not giving anything for the needs of the body. Faith shows itself by its works. There is no faith without faithfulness. Verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is quite astounding, I think, because James quotes the Shema. He goes to Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And every Jew worthy of the name knows that and believes that. And James says that if you only believe that, but you don't express it through faithful living, all that does is put you on the same level of knowledge as the demons. Because the demons know that too. The demons know that the Lord God is one. And so you're doing no better than they are. And I suspect that this was a shock, a genuine shock down to the toes of some of the people that James was writing to. Because the demons knew that Jesus was the Christ. Mark 1.24, Jesus is casting out a demon, and it says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now, could that faith save that demon? No. Because despite the knowledge, knowing that Jesus was the Christ, the demon was actively working against him. So no, that faith couldn't save that demon. And I think there can't be any stronger way of saying that words alone are not faith. Because if a demon and somebody who professes to be a believer can say the same thing, then words alone are not faith. For words to be true... They have to be lived out. And going back to James's example, it means not only saying, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but giving that person what's needed for the body. You know, again, going, faith and works can be an abstract argument. And so I want to keep going back to James's story of, of you know, giving the needs for the body and, and not just saying empty words. So I think James has made a knockdown closing argument at this point. But he's not done. He continues. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, uh oh, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So first of all, just real quick, when James says, you foolish person, he's not being mean and he's not calling names. He's referring back to the biblical tradition of, in wisdom literature, of who is the fool. And a fool 
is somebody who doesn't pay attention to reality, but makes their own reality and insists that it is reality. And for somebody who says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and doesn't help somebody, that's living in an unreality. So it's perfectly appropriate for James to call that person foolish. But then he turns to Abraham, the father of faith, to show what faith really looks like. This is going to take a little bit of time to unpack. So in Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham in a vision. And he takes Abraham outside and he says, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now again, Abraham is old. Sarai is barren. There's no empirical evidence whatsoever for why what God says should be true. Everything argues against it. But Genesis 15, 6 says, And he believed the Lord, and, it counted to him, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God's promise for offspring, even at his age and at Sarah's age. He had faith that God would come through on the promise. Abraham knew he couldn't make it happen. But he could believe God and and trust God to see to the results. He trusted that God would see to the results himself. Now, did it cost Abraham anything to believe this, what God said? Did it cost him anything? Well, you know, it probably carried a lot of emotional weight for Abraham to believe God and to, to look ahead to when a child would be born. But in a lot of ways, Abraham could just believe that and then go on with his life as normal. Until the day when God said to Abraham in chapter 22, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall tell you. I'm not going to work through the whole chronology of Abraham's life and and the distance of time between when God gave him that vision and made the promise and Abraham believed and when God called him to go to Mount Moriah. But conservatively, I think it was about 30 years between those two things, probably closer to 40. So it was a long stretch of time where Abraham believed the promise, but there wasn't really anything uh, that was costing him in the process. And 30 plus years later, that faith of his would be put to a test of faithfulness. Now Abraham had to put skin in the game. Now he had to risk something. Trusting God would require that he would risk something that was very precious to him. Abraham believed God's promise that he would have offspring and that his offspring would be like the stars. But how could that be if he offered Isaac as a burnt offering? Not only would he be ending Isaac's life, but he would be ending his own line. He basically would have no future. So how could, it come, how could God's promise come true? And Abraham could have said, God, I believe what you said. But now that my son is alive and grown, I can't sacrifice him. How would you fulfill your promise? But Abraham didn't say that. Instead, we're told in, in verse 3 of chapter 22, So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And when Isaac asks, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? 
Abraham replies, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. In other words, God will see to it. I trust that God will see to it. In Hebrews 11, the writer says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So, recapping it all, Abraham believed that when it came to having offspring, God would see to it, and God did see to it. And when it came to obeying God to offer up his son, even though it would end his line and end the possibility of God's promise coming true, Abraham believed that God would see to it. So zoom back to James's audience now. They're holding back for themselves, and they're not giving others who are in need. And James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Faith believes God, follows it up with faithfulness, and trusts that God will see to the results. Faith believes God, follows it up with faithfulness, and trusts that God will see to the results. So if I give to you, maybe I won't have enough for me. And James says, be faithful, and God will see to the results. Or we might think, if I make this time commitment to the body, to the church, I won't have enough time for myself. Be faithful, and God will see to the results. If I don't fight back, our persecutors will kill us. Be faithful, and God will see to the results. And this is the second point that I want to make. There is no faith without skin in the game. There is no faith without something to lose. Thirty years after believing God, Abraham had something to lose. And he put his skin in the game. He put his belief from 30 years before on the line by offering up Isaac. And he said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. God will see to it. And then James turns to Rahab. Because Rahab put skin in the game too. So this is verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So I won't read the whole story from Joshua 2, but we know that Rahab hides the two Israelite spies who come to Jericho, who apparently don't do a very good job of being spies, because the whole point of being a spy is that you're not seen, and the guards see them go into Rahab's house. But she hides them. And then later she goes up to the roof and she says this to them. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. So Rahab believed that Israel's God was the God of heaven and earth. 
and that he's made Israel unbeatable. That's faith, right? That's good. That's what we want to see. We want to see professions of faith. But what if she then said, but I'm scared that if I get caught with you, my family and I are going to get killed, so I'm handing you over, right? That would not be action in concert with her profession of faith. And so she hides them. She puts her skin in the game for them uh, because she knows that it's the right thing to do and she sees it as the way for her family to be saved. It's a God that she only knows by report. She's never had any interaction with this God. She's a Gentile. And she's only heard of God by report. And yet she believes that he's the God of heaven and earth. And she trusts that if she hides the spies, God will see to the results. So it's one thing for James to talk about Abraham because he's the father of faith. But it's another for him to talk about Rahab, who's a Gentile and a prostitute. And yet he takes her example, excuse me, he takes her example and he puts it side by side with Abraham and says, these are the same thing. This is faith being lived out, expressed in works. Faith that God recognizes is faith that puts skin in the game and trusts him to see the results. Amen? All right, three points of application. The first one is that works matter. If I haven't made it clear by now, works matter. When the New Testament gives us a picture of final judgment, it's not a theological exam at the gates of heaven. It's not about what did you believe and answering the questions correctly. It always centers on works. So I'm going I'm to run through a couple of these quickly. But John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 2 Corinthians 5:10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. Revelation 20, 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And I don't have time to read Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats, but those who did works of mercy inherit the kingdom, and those who did not do works of mercy go into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Works matter, and we can't forget it. Number two, I just label this one, just keep going. You know, maybe it's a particular kind of personality, but... Over the years, I've often heard people wonder if they're doing what God wants them to do or if they're falling short in their lives. And, and they don't doubt their eternal destiny, but they just doubt whether they're doing everything that God would have them do. And, and they look at their lives and they think, you know, I, I should know the Bible better. I should serve more. I should be a better parent Uh, I should share the gospel more. I should pray more. I should have more spiritual disciplines in my life. And to put it another way, sometimes we wonder just, am I really committed? Am Am I really living out the faith? And I think in this passage, we can draw some comfort that James sets the bar for faith 
whether it's genuine faith or not, at whether we are expressing our faith through works. He doesn't say, I will show you my faith by gushing out my affections about God constantly and talking about how in love with God I am. He doesn't say, I will show you my faith by how well I can articulate the finer points of the Christian faith. James says, I will show you my faith by my works. Our good works are the fruit that springs forth from our lives, and they demonstrate that we're connected to the true vine. And obviously we don't boast in our works. They're nothing that we boast about. But if you ever wonder if you're committed enough, I say just keep going. Just keep going. Keep giving yourself to good works, to service, to hospitality, to mercy, and don't quit. And don't worry too much. And number three, I am my brother's keeper. God asked Cain, where is your brother? And Cain replied, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer was yes. I am my brother's keeper and I am my sister's keeper. And that's why when talking about something that could be really abstract like faith and works, James brings it down to if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We need to take responsibility for one another. And not everyone will let you know that they're in need. Sometimes you have to do a little bit of digging, but we are responsible for one another, and not everybody will let us know when they have a need. And quite often this will mean putting our skin in the game and trusting God to see to the results. Abraham didn't go wrong doing that. Rahab didn't go wrong doing that. And we won't go wrong doing that. Amen? Amen.